Hi, everyone. Long time no talk to. A very exciting show today. Uh, I want to welcome our guest, John Fitzgerald. Uh, you know, it is not every day that you get to have the director of your favorite baseball documentary on. So definitely honored and glad that John agreed to do this. Uh, John was the director of, of Playing for Peanuts. Uh, for those of you who have not listened to my previous episodes with uh, Bubba Birdsong and Mike Janella, it is a 10-episode documentary that followed the South Georgia Peanuts Independent League team of the South Coast League during the 2007 season. Uh, the league only lasted a year, but brought in a lot of well-known names. Most famous would be a former, former big leaguer, a 1986 world champion, uh, with the New York Mets, Wally Backman. He was the man manager of the Peanuts, now manager of the Long Island Ducks. Uh, also Cecil Fielder, Phil Plantier, Mike Caruso, Desi Wilson, Curtis Goodwin, Jackie Hernandez, Anthony Telford, just to name a few. Uh, all are former big leaguers that either played or managed in the league. So with that, very excited to talk to John and uh, get inside into the documentary, learning more about his experience and, and the team. And of course, we'll end with Tyler's five. So with that, John, how are you holding up with everything? And again, thanks for taking the time to do this. Hey, Tyler, thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing well, thank you. Awesome, awesome. And, and like I said, really excited to have a conversation today. So I wanna start out talking about what led you to do the documentary and, and how easy or difficult was it to get the permission to have full access to everything with that team? Well, well, again, I guess the story starts back in uh, 2000, uh, 2002, 2003. Um, I actually made a documentary about the Irish national baseball team, and that was my first film, and um, it was called The Emerald Diamond. It, uh, it did pretty well. You know, I financed it on credit cards, and it was, uh, like I said, the first time I had made a film, but um, it was received well. We played it in theaters across uh, the U.S., and... Um, it, uh, it generated some interest and I wanted to do another baseball story, but I didn't want to fly overseas to do it. I wanted to do something in the U.S. And um, I started contacting independent leagues and one of those leagues was an upstart league called the South Coast League. I had never heard of them because they, they hadn't played a game, but um, somehow I just had never even heard that this was starting up. And uh, I reached out to the league office and surprisingly, uh, at least surprisingly to me, they were they were on board from the get-go. Um, you know, they, they didn't really have any um, any questions about it or, or uh, apprehensions about it. Um, they uh, they were they were into it from the start, and uh, and that's how it started. Awesome. Now, did you uh, was it just a phone call that you contacted the league office, or did you just send an email? And and who actually called you? Was it Chris Allen, or was it Jamie Toole, or or was it uh, one of the interns over there? Uh, it was an email. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, it was Kevin Davidson who worked oh. in the league office. And, um, and then from there I was given the option to follow any team. And I didn't really have a, a strong feeling one way or the other, uh, until I saw the coaches and, and I knew right away, I wanted to follow Wally back, you know, growing up a Mets fan and being, um, just remembering how he used to play. He wasn't my favorite Met growing up, uh, but you know, he, he played hard and, um, you know, it, it, uh, it was really more of a, a situation where I looked at the list of, of managers and Wally Backman and Phil Plantier were the two that stuck out to me as probably the most interesting. And mm -hmm. I just kind of decided to go with Wally, uh, because, you know, I was from New York and that was, that was pretty much it. Nice. Yeah, that that's definitely uh, you definitely picked a, 
a great manager and a fun team to follow around that summer for sure. And with that, um, I'm going to try not to give away the whole documentary. I want, I want to encourage people, if you get a chance to, to watch it, um, watch it. And there's plenty of clips on YouTube as well. Um, but episode one starts out with the players being introduced and, you know, kind of moving into their housing for the summer. I believe it was an old military housing complex there in Albany, Georgia. So what was your housing situation like? Uh, I know Wally, you know, was in an RV at the, you know, Albany RV resort there. And then the team was in that complex. I believe uh, Buddy and, and Bubba were from the area. So what was kind of your your housing situation there? Uh, at the risk of sounding uh, a little, uh, you know, like like we were spending a lot of money, we, we stayed in hotels. Um, they weren't the gre greatest hotels, but they did the job. I mean, we just needed a place to crash. And, um, you know, we were independent of the league. So, you know, they didn't put us up. They didn't help us with travel. It was, uh, it was, you know, an independent production. So we had to, um, or I had to find, you know, hotels with good deals and, and, you know, make arrangements and negotiate, you know, uh, extended stays. Um, and there was, you know, there was a lot of, um, we were, we were always in flux because, you know, I, I had my core crew, mm -hmm. but they couldn't always make it because they, they had jobs working on other films and other projects, and they were working for very low uh, wages. And um, some of them were working on a deferred payment, so they weren't even going to get money until well after the production was over. So anytime they had to go back to New York, they had to go back to New York to work. That was it. So I always had to go to the hotels and, and try to negotiate something where, you know, I knew a guy was going to be with us for a week. So I needed the best rate for the week. I mean, it, it was uh, there was a lot of back and forth to try to make sure that um, we kept costs as low as possible. And we uh, were able to arrange for someone to, to come in if somebody else couldn't make it. And there was one there was one period where I was not in. Um, Georgia with the team. Uh, it was about, a, I think, a 10 or 12 day period. And um, and we had hired um, uh, a, a cinematographer in Florida who had uh, actually filmed the tryouts for the league. Um, I don't even know where that is right now, but there is a there's a short video of the tryouts where um, Wally signed a guy named Chris Dimmons mm -hmm. at the tryout. And that was I wasn't even there. I, you know, at this point we were just trying to get the, the production off the ground. So I hired a, a local cameraman and he went down and filmed it and, and, uh, sent me the footage and I cut it together. So yeah, it was, uh, you know, to answer your question about living arrangements, it was, uh, it was a constant, um, battle to try to make sure we, we had a place to stay and, and we had the money to do it and, uh, everything worked out. Absolutely. Now, was this on the road as well, too? You were not only funding, you know, housing in Albany or the Albany area, but also when the team was on the road? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we we drove down from New York and we drove everywhere in our vehicles and uh, we stayed in our own hotel. You know, usually uh, sometimes it was the same hotel as the team, you know, um, the La Quinta Inn in uh, Anderson. Um mm -hmm which you can see in the episode where the team has to, I think they, they had four rooms on uh, getaway day. So after the game, there was no locker room at the field. So they had to, they all took showers in four rooms, which was just one of the most disgusting things ever. Um, we, uh, we were staying at that hotel um, and uh, you know, we stayed at that hotel. We stayed at the sleep in in Albany, Georgia. I don't remember where we stayed in Macon um, or, 
Aiken, I think, was asleep in as well. It, it, yeah, it all kind of runs runs <laughs> together. They they were solid hotels. I mean, I, you know, I don't mind it, and uh, the crew was was great about it. Um, but they certainly weren't four star hotels. But that's you know that's not what we were there for. Absolutely, and and kind of talking about Albany there too. I mean, you basically spent you know I'll say good what six months in and out of Albany there. So kind of talk to me, being from New York, what that experience was like. You know, now you're in Albany. Albany, Georgia, and and um, have you been back since the documentary was was out? And and did you you know has anything changed? Um, I uh, I was back once to film a few uh, a few quick shots uh, for one day, uh, but that was before the documentary came out. So that would have been uh, probably I would say late two thousand seven. Uh, you know what? Early two thousand seven, probably. Yeah. I I don't remember the exact date, but um, no, I you know Albany was cool. It's a small city. Um, the people there are really really proud of their uh, baseball tradition, and and that was one of the the small undercurrents of the story was that this was a town that had seen pro baseball come and go so many times, and and so many times recently. And they had a rich baseball history. I, I think Buddy York had played um, in Albany or, or or nearby at least. And Bubba Birdsong um, was from Georgia and, and was a coach uh, uh, on the other side and uh, other side of the border in Alabama. Um, there was, you know, it's a it's a real baseball town, and and that that was cool, you know. And then the whole town was cool. Everybody was was really into the peanuts and. Um, you know, it, that was one of the things where towards the end, it just it, it became so sad because everybody knew, you know, things were going downhill. And, um, you know, it, it, it really it really was was hard to watch because the whole beginning of the show was about how proud the city was to welcome pro baseball back and, and how how big the plans were that that, uh, you know, they had a nice ballpark. They had a very interested fan base and and then slowly started to see things and pretty soon you knew it was it was out of control. Definitely. And I'll, you know, kind of getting a little sentimental here, but I think for me, the part where I uh, where I personally kind of felt a little bit of I don't want to say shock because it's been, you know, a few years, but the part where I felt sad for the players was at the end. There was a you know, they won the championship and then you know, the screen came up where it said, you know, I can't remember what all it said, but the last thing that it read before going into the credits was the players never received their championship rings, you know, and I just remember one part where they, one of the players, and I can't remember who it was exactly, but say, you know, we get rings. This is, you know, a lot of them the first time they've ever won a championship like that. So to follow a team like that, that had been through so much adversity, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, um, the adversity uh, what was that like to kind of see that, you know, it felt like there were a lot of highs and lows and then they'll really, you know, them winning was of course they're on top of the mound, but then the part where they're not getting the rings now, it just kind of felt like another low in that, in that, I don't know what to call it, but, but you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that, that last scene, that last shot, I, uh, I blatantly ripped off the last scene in eight men out. And that was, uh, that was a conscious decision. I, that's like my all time favorite baseball movie. And <laughs> it's probably my all time favorite last scene in a movie. Um, so, you know, I wanted to kind of, you know, that, that, that last scene in eight men out where, uh, Joe Jackson hits a triple and Buck Weaver's in the stands and like, you know, it's never, coming back for these guys and, and it's, um, it's sad and, and it's, you know, but it's still baseball. So it's still got that somewhat upbeat thing that Joe Jackson's still playing ball and, you know, Buck Weaver's not. And, and I wanted to get that kind of 
point across and I hope I did because, yeah. um, you know, in, in the context of, of playing for peanuts, it was the same type of vibe. It was, uh, you know, these guys were just on the top of the world. And, and that was something that happened in the moment that I don't think I or the crew expected the, you know, we knew the team wanted to win, but to hear them talking about it immediately after, I think the, the quote that you mentioned, I think that was Tug Gillingham. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, these are guys that grew up playing baseball. Some of them were on their way up in pro ball. Some of them were playing indie ball for one year and they were probably going to be done. Um, and, and others had come down from the major leagues and they, they were just, you know, totally committed to this. And in the moment they were so proud of themselves and so proud of what they'd done because they had won a championship and it didn't matter that they were in the South coast league. Um, so, you know, I wanted I wanted to try to convey that, and that was you know, that was pretty powerful just to see that because you know Wally Backman is a perfect example, and uh, he had mentioned it in a couple of his speeches during the year that um, you know his goal was to get players to the to the major leagues or, or you know to affiliated ball and hopefully to the major leagues, but you know for the guys that were still there, they needed to focus on winning a championship because uh, I think he said he had six rings which I'm sure included minor league rings and the, the 86 championship ring. Um, but he said, you know, it doesn't matter where you win. It, as long as you win, um, nobody can take that away from you. And um, I had heard him say that to the team and the team had heard it, but I didn't realize how much it resonated. And, and, and maybe it wasn't even him saying it. Maybe it was the guys that, um, you know, they knew because they were on their journey and they understood, um, you know, they had played high school ball. They had you know, most of them had played college ball, played some pro ball. Winning a championship is winning a championship, and that's it. Period. You you win or you don't, and uh, and it really was powerful to watch. And, and I'm glad that we got to see that. And uh, and I wanted to convey convey that kind of juxtaposition between being on top of that world for that one brief moment, and then you know the league never gave them their rings. And you know what what yeah. else can you say? Absolutely. And I know it resonated with me for sure as I kind of, you know, started my coaching career shortly after a couple of years after the documentary was released. And and I think the one part that a lot of parts stuck with me, uh, but the one part that really stuck with me as a coach was uh, during that same, you know, when he had when Wally addressed the crowd and said, you know, we want to bring back another champ, you know, bring this championship back next year. And so there was still kind of that optimism that maybe the season will will happen again or maybe, you know, the league will continue. Uh, but then when he turned around and, you know, thanked the 25 or 26 guys and said, those are the guys who deserve it, and then gave the credit to to the players, and then he said, and the coaching staff. You know, he never once mentioned himself or, you know, he thanked the fans, the players, the co the other coaches. And and I saw that, and, and that just really resonated with me that, you know, he he was there to help those guys, and I think those guys, you know, I got the vibe they would run through a brick wall for him just because of the type of coach he is and the type of personality and how he, you know, he wants to help others win that championship. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the whole season was just a, a really interesting study in, in how Wally related to his players and, and to his coaches. And, um, you know, I, I've heard um, Connor Jackson, we, we interviewed him, um, you know, uh, from the Diamondbacks at the time. And uh, Dan Uggla's on record as saying that uh, he would run through a wall for Wally. And you hear those words and, and they, you know, it's interesting to hear that stuff. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of fans, certainly Met fans, hear that and they want Wally as a manager. Um, 
but to see exactly why these guys would do that, uh, that was that was another thing I really wanted to bring forward in the documentary because, you know, while he wasn't threatening these guys, he wasn't yelling every day. You know, he had a couple of blow ups, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But um, everything was was really uh, geared towards helping other people. And, you know, while he made no. Uh, you know, there, there was no misunderstanding the fact that Wally wanted to be in Major League Baseball. That was it for him. Like that was his goal. But he realized he was in he was in Albany, Georgia, for at least a season. It was his comeback after being out of professional baseball for a couple of years. Um, but what he did was he oriented himself in a way that you know he was completely focused on making sure you know, his, his guys got to the next level as many as possible. I think, I think seven or eight guys were signed by affiliated baseball. And the reason for that was while he was on the phone all the time, trying to hype these guys. Um, and, and his, his word carried a lot of weight with scouts because he knew what he was talking about. And you could put a uniform on a guy and tell you to tell me that's your coach. But, um, Wally Backman is on a different level and, and the scouts knew that. And anybody who who can judge, you know, any kind of competency or talent or whatever takes one look at Wally, listens to him for a couple of innings, and you know he knows what he's talking about on a level that uh, other coaches in in uh, in the league were not on. And that's no slight on them. Wally should be in Major League Baseball. Um, and, you know, everybody I've spoken to in professional baseball that knows Wally believes he should not only be managing a major league baseball, but, you know, at worst, he would be a very um, useful coach on a, on a very good team. Um, but as a manager, he'd probably be very successful. So you have a guy who's probably one of the best. And I really believe this probably one of the best baseball minds in baseball uh, in this league. And, and he's running circles around everyone else. I mean, you would expect that, but he, he continued to, to make it his focus to call the scouts and use his, um, credibility to try to get guys signed. And he did that from start to finish. He did it after the season. Um, I flew out to Oregon to get some uh, interviews with him after the, the season was over and he was still doing it then, you know, season was over. Guys weren't under contract. He wasn't under contract. He was continuing to call scouts and, and try to push people. Um, and, uh, and, and he was the same way with his coaches. I mean, I, I think his coaches were, uh, you know, they were treated well. They, they, he brought them in into the decision making process. He he tried to teach them as well, um, you know, and, and he tried to teach us too. I mean, he would take us aside and explain, you know, why he was using a certain pitcher the way he he was using them, you know, the next day or whatever. Um, he was always talking baseball. It was really interesting to see, and and um, even guys on my crew who got to listen to the Wally feed. We had all, you know, the coaches were mic'd up, and we usually had a player or two mic'd up, and everybody had a role. So some cameramen or, or um, some cameramen were pointed at a player who had a mic, other cameramen were pointed, uh, you know, on the action at home plate. Um, and somebody was always on, on Wally and uh, guys would want to either be on Wally or to tap into his mic feed. So you could hear the running commentary because he, he just never stopped talking. And he, uh, he would predict things four innings before they happened. It was incredible. Absolutely. And I definitely, uh, definitely got that sense when I was, you know, and of course I've watched the episodes many, many times uh, and I really try to watch it from a coaching perspective. So he, he is definitely one who, if I ever had the opportunity to, 
you know, be around him or, or pick his brain. He's definitely uh, definitely up there on my list because of his knowledge. And you talked a little bit about the the other coaches too. He brought in some pretty successful, you know, uh, I know Buddy was, I believe he coached some American Legion down there. Bubba uh, is a 42-year high school coaching veteran uh, now. So back then it would have been 30-some years, you know, took some teams to state. You know, and then Larry, you know, coached in an affiliated ball and had a very sex- successful career and and was very successful when he managed the team when Wally was out for, I believe it was 11 11 or 12 games or something like that. And and so he brought in a great coaching staff and, and those guys really just meshed together with Wally. Can you kind of talk more about that? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, Wally's, Wally's coaching staff, uh, you know, they did a phenomenal job, you know, guys, guys like Buddy and Larry and, and Bubber, um, they, you know, they, they didn't, I think Larry played a little bit of pro ball if I'm, correct but um you know none of them were major leaguers you know they were they were baseball guys and they knew how to coach um wally's role as far as i could tell was to kind of empower them and let them know that like you know i've got your back and you know how to coach and so we're going to be fine you know and i never got the sense that um there was any communication issue as far as like any like Bubber could go up to a guy and, and, and talk to him about something that, you know, and, or, or buddy could talk to the pitchers, um, you know, tell them something. And, and the pit, they all knew that everything that was being said had the, had the backing of Wally Backman. So, you know, it was, it was as if, you know, Bubber and buddy and, and Larry had played major league baseball and, and won a championship in 86. Like that was the level of respect that I saw. Um, and, and, you know, Wally could have just, you know, gotten a coaching staff full of former pros like him um or he could have just you know had the coaches he had and and not back them but everybody knew that you know it was uh you know it was coming it was coming from a from the coach's office and the coaches operated as a unit everybody knew what uh, what their role was um players knew what their role was coaches knew their roles and uh and i think that really came in 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 handy when um Wally was suspended because he was away from the team, but the coaches were still operating from the same plan that Wally had implemented. And the players still wanted to win, not only for, for Wally, but they wanted to win for these, these other coaches as well. They, they wanted to, you know, show everyone that, uh, you know, that they were the best team in the league. And so when, when they lost their coach who, you know, their manager, who's, you know, arguably the, the best manager in the league, um, that's a pretty big blow, but uh, but the team was able to use that as motivation. Absolutely, and as a you know, as you're filming this and your crew's filming this, and and uh, I know a lot of the clips, there were personnel decisions that were made, quote you know, behind closed doors that you had access to. I'm curious, from your perspective, what was that? You know, you had a different insight toward what was going on in the clubhouse and what was going on behind closed doors. You saw it also. You know, was there, did players ever come up to you and say, hey, what, was there anything said about me behind closed doors or was there any of that going on or was there, did everybody kind of respect each other's position and, and just kind of, you know, everything that was said stayed between, you know, that group? Um, well, that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, that never, there was never any, um, never play any player that uh, tried to get information from us. I don't even know how much information we would have had. You know, we might have gotten wind of, uh, you know, a trade that was being worked out, you know, a few hours before or or a player that might get released or that sort of thing. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I think Wally and, and the coaches kind of, um, they, they kind of played it close to the vest because you, you don't want that kind of stuff out in the locker room. And I, right. you know, I, I don't remember anything off the top of my head. It, you know, it's been a while, but I, I think if we knew about, like, I know Travis Hundley got traded. We found out about that, uh, right after it happened, Pat Ford got traded. And I think we found out after afterwards, um, we would always find out if there was a new guy coming in or if Wally was trying to get a guy in, we, we would hear about that. Um, the, the corresponding roster move is not something that I really remember too much about. And it's really, it's not something that the players worried about because, uh, Travis Hundley got dealt and, uh, and Wally told him, look, you know, we're, I forget who he got traded for. Um, Wow, I can't remember. Uh, but whoever it was, uh, I'm I'm sure he he did well because everybody they brought in did well. But um, when Travis left, Travis it was bittersweet. But Travis was going to a team that was uh, going to play him. And mm-hmm. and the next time we saw Travis in Anderson, he was doing pretty well and and he was getting more playing time. And uh, and Pat Ford, uh, I believe, was traded to Bradenton, and um, you know he he got a better role down there. So. You know, Wally was conscious of that, too. He was always trying to get the better end of the deal, but he wanted to make sure that if he was giving one of his guys up, that that he had an understanding of what that role would be. And uh, and the other coaches, you know, they I, I'm not trying to slate the other coaches by saying Wally was the best in the league. The other coaches knew that and, and they respected Wally's, you know, background and, and uh, intellect, uh, you know, and, and experience in the game. And uh, they would talk. Most of them would talk to, uh, you know, try to, you know, Wally would try to teach them as well. And, and he actually brought in Desi Wilson, mm-hmm. um, who had been the manager of Anderson. And, and Des, Desi was a, a big part of that last uh, last couple of weeks of the season. Um, and, you know, Desi recognized full well that, that Wally had, you know, just tremendous credibility. And, and, and Desi, being a former major league player, did as well. But, you know, he knew that he could learn a lot from Wally. And, and uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people could learn from Wally. Absolutely. And, and kind of going along with that, too, we, we talked earlier, um, that team fought a lot of adversity. So if, if you wouldn't mind kind of um, don't really want to rehash giving away episodes and rehash a lot of you know negative stuff that might have went on, whether it be with the league or, or whatever, but uh, kind of talk about just overall the adversity and, and how that team really fought through that and, and how you got to witness it firsthand. Yeah, um, I think. You know, I think the cities in uh, in the South Coast League were um, very excited for pro baseball. And I think once Wally was hired, he kind of became a, a bit of a lightning rod just because, you know, the 86 Mets and, and people remembered that that was not a popular team outside of New York. Um, so it was going to be a little thing that people could uh, kind of you know, go see Wally Backman. And, and he had a little bit of a reputation at that point as a, a manager that might lose his temper once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think as more people found out about, you know, what had happened and how he wound up in Albany, you know, being uh, the manager of the uh, Diamondbacks for three days and never managing a game, um, you know, n- now everybody knows that story. But back then, I mean, I, I wasn't even too clear on it. I had lost track of what Wally was doing. I, I didn't really... You know, I wasn't paying attention the week that he was the manager at the Diamondbacks. So um, I think that, you know, coupled with the 86 Mets, that made, made the Peanuts into kind of, in a way, they were like public enemy number one. And, and uh, you know, people wanted to come out and root against the Peanuts. And um, there was some, some, you know, just 
some fans that were just out there in some cities that just did not, you know, weren't, weren't, weren't being very charitable to the team, let's say. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's fine. And that probably would have disappeared pretty quickly, except for that Wally had, had a team of, uh, of guys that like he went in knowing who he wanted. He, he really worked hard to, to get guys that had either played with his son um, in the Rangers organization or, just guys that he had, you know, heard of or seen play or, or whatever that, that were, you know, available. Um, Larry Olenberger brought in some guys. Um, I think Larry brought in Mike Calaccio, Tug Gillingham, if I remember correctly. I'm sure Buddy brought in some guys. Bubber may have brought in some guys. I, I can't remember off the top of my head how everybody got there. But but Wally had this list of guys that, that he ended up with to start the season. Steve Garibrands, Joe Hoof, Johnny Washington, and Doc Brooks. Um maybe forgetting a couple, but, um, you know, those, those guys were probably enough to, to win the championship right there. Um, just at the start of the season. And, uh, so the team started winning, just ripping through the league. And, and then this, this legend of Wally Backman and, and the peanuts just starts uh, spreading through the league. And now, you know, people want them to lose, you know, and, and then, uh, certain, Certain things happen during the season while he gets ejected. Um, a couple of players uh, may have failed a drug test, according to the league, but that was disputed. And I think the players made a pretty convincing case, um, mm-hmm. which is in the documentary. And, and But all of these things were used by the league to promote the league. But, you know, it really started to backfire because the league was using a lot of negative stories to promote the league. What they had was a, a tremendous manager. Um, and and a, a very good team that continued to to send players to affiliated ball and what the league was choosing to really promote was ejections and drug tests and and just stuff that really was not baseball related and i think you know that coupled with the heat which they knew was going to happen you know eventually people just kind of threw up their hands and and you know weren't really interested in, in coming out to the ballpark in, in other cities. And then it started to trickle into Albany. And, you know, I think that's really, that's a big part of what happened was um, the league, you know, was not promoting, you know, the positive end of it, which, which really was a positive story. I thought. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and you talked a little bit about the ejection there. Um, and, and I know, I know from watching it and stuff, you know, what reality, you know, what that it was real, you know, trying to fire the guys up and and it worked. Um, But there's still a perception out there about that one ejection um, that kind of, you know, I I don't want to say elevated it, but brought in a lot of negativity. So can you kind of talk about that? And maybe, you know, if you have any, any insight to kind of clear the, you know, clear that up for people who might have this perception, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing it. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Wally, uh, I guess the best way to explain this is that Wally was probably the most laid back manager I've ever seen. Um, and that includes, you know, my, my time, you know, I played in high school. I played a little bit in college. Um, I I've watched a lot of, uh, a lot of baseball, you know, I've done documentaries about sports. I've been around the game at all levels for years. Um, Wally's one of the most laid back people I've ever met. Um, he can lose his temper, but he does it in a way that that's kind of uh, geared towards motivating his team. And what I mean by that is he 
his team, they started out, I think they started out 5-0. and They lost the sixth game. It was getaway day at home against um, against the make, uh, no, I'm sorry, against the uh, the Charlotte County Redfish. They were 5-1. and they, they were clearly the best team in the league already. And Wally uh, had a closed-door meeting where he, he chewed his team out because they had made some stupid, you know, mental errors. And he could have let it slide. Um, but he chose, you know... He was five and one, like, at, you know, he, he could turn around next week and they'd be 12 and one. And then at that, at what point is he going to establish himself as the leader of the team that, that will not tolerate mental errors? So he did that at, at five and one. And the next time I saw him yell at the team was the week before the playoffs because the team had, had gotten lazy and they, they had stopped going to BP, um, you know, stopped coming early for BP. And, and he just sensed that they were in a, uh, a, a bit of a funk and they lost a game to Macon. I, be- I believe it was in between games of a doubleheader uh, to Macon. This is before the season ended. And he, he lit into the team again. And both of those things are in the documentary. But what people don't understand is that was it. He did not yell at the team from as far as I can remember. And it's certainly not in the documentary from the start of the season, game six until the last, game of the season in between he was very laid back you know he wanted the the team to understand they had certain things they needed to do you know show up work hard make the plays if you do something wrong you correct it um you know if you if you don't you know if, if you don't understand your role we'll talk i mean it was just it was just constant communication and it was not an overbearing presence. It was not something where the guys were afraid to make a mistake. I mean, he, he allowed them to do what they needed to do to get the job done. And, um, you know, when people see the video of the ejection, they think, you know, wow, this guy, this guy's crazy. He's, he's in their face. He must be in their player's face. It must be so hard to play for him. It's totally, totally different. The players loved playing for him. We loved covering the team because they were so relaxed. They They were willing to talk. They were willing to, um, you know, just like, you know, let us know like what, what their thoughts were about baseball. Like nobody was, was uptight about, you know, letting us in to understand more about, you know, what it takes to be a pro baseball player because they were having a great time. Um, they were, they were showing up to the ballpark, doing their job, winning the game. And, you know, that's all Wally wanted. And, and, and um, so when you get to the ejections, if you understand that while he's really laid back, you know, the question is, how, how is he, how, how is it that he flies off the handle at the umpires? And the answer to that was um, the umpires in the league were not prepared to be pro baseball umpires. Um, they, and that's not a slight on them. They were, I think, I think all of them were high school umpires. Um, the game was too fast for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, that was, you know, that was something we heard from all the teams, all the players, uh, league officials. I, I think some league officials told us, you know, they were aware of the problem. Um, and, and Wally, you know, day in and day out, every single pitch was was fine with this. But there were certain times where it would go over a line and Wally would say, all right, I got I, I have to say something. And, and he wouldn't just go out and say something. He would make it into a big scene because he needed his players to know that he understood that they were playing under conditions that were not um, suitable for professional baseball. And in the case of the big ev- ejection in Anderson, um, the, the backstory was Anderson didn't have a clubhouse. They, mm-hmm. um, they didn't, I don't even think they had 
most of the seats or all of the seats were were like these concrete benches and and so like the fans you know fans were uncomfortable players were uncomfortable um obviously it was hot but you're going to get that um but you know with no clubhouse the team had to get changed before they got to the field and then they would after the game they would have to go on the bus back and and uh, shower so um this was like you know, the, the lights on the stanchions that for night games, like some of the lights were out. It was tough to see. And this is a team that had seen a couple of blackouts during games. There were rumors that there were electric bills that hadn't been paid in certain cities. Um, there was the umpiring was was substandard. There were most of the umpires weren't very nice guys. They just they weren't up to it and they weren't trained for it. And they, they shouldn't have been thrown in that situation. Um, but given the backdrop of all of these things, um, there was a day where it was like 95 degrees and, um, it was kids day, which basically meant there were a ton of kids at the ballpark, except that they had, most of them had left cause it was so hot and, um, it was an empty ballpark and, and Wally, uh, you know, Wally's player, doc Brooks, um, got, uh, got ejected. He was batting. He got ejected on a ball call because he asked where a pitch was and, uh, Wally had enough and, and that was it. And, but when Wally went out, he, he wanted to know why his player got ejected. The umpire wouldn't tell him. Then the umpire ejected him. Um, and then at that point, Wally uh, threw, I believe it was 23 bats onto the field. Um, but, you know, I mean, but again, with Wally, you have to understand that, that the, the losing of the temper is, is uh, you know, it, it's kind of orchestrated. Uh, I don't want to say staged because people have accused me of, of staging that, which is ridiculous. but um, it, he he's throwing bats on the field, but he's letting the catcher know that the catcher needs to move because he doesn't want to hurt the catcher. You know, he right. just wants to you know make a statement that you know this is this is wrong, and I want I want you to know. And and he throws all the bats on the field, and and then he uh, he exits the field and and um, and gives us an interview. And you could see the interview; it happened two minutes later. He's completely calm, um, but it was all it was all to show his players that he understood that they were going through things that pro baseball players shouldn't go through. And, and you could say that it's a, you know, I've heard people say, well, it's independent. It's not pro it, it is pro they're getting paid. And, uh, and these are guys that were, you know, they, they were playing on fields that, you know, in some cases weren't as good as they should have been. Um, you know, the lights being out was a problem. If these guys got injured, that's their livelihood that that's, you know, potentially, you know, these guys all wanted to make it back to the, to affiliated ball. Um, and, and while he's sitting there watching this, you know, realizing that somebody could get hurt, um, you know, somebody could, uh, you know, just put themselves at risk and, and it, it just, that that's just the way it was while he was trying to, 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 um, to stand up for his players and he did, but people do see that, that ejection and, and taken out of context, mm-hmm. you know, he looks like a, like a crazy man, but, but he was, he was making a statement about what was happening to his players and to the players on the other teams, because the other players had to go through the same thing. And, uh, Phil Plantier, who was a former major leaguer, um, had similar run-ins and, um, you know, that the, those were things that, that guys like, like Wally and Phil had to do. Absolutely. And of course, you know, I appreciate you going, you know, giving us some insight into that. And of course, uh, I thought you did a good job too, uh, and of course, these clips won't get 
you know, won't get played by, by, you know, other outlets, you know, nine times out of 10, but the ones where I remember one clip in particular where uh, there's an umpire named George and Wally was very complimentary of George. He said, you know, he's a good guy. And, and there was one clip of him standing there and they're talking in the dugout, you know, they, they'd been friends for 20 years and, and, you know, him and George had had a couple of run-ins, but nothing, you know, nothing too serious, nothing that, you know, you would ever question, you know, it's more him questioning, you know, calls and stuff, but they had a mutual respect and, or it seemed like I, um, and, and, you know, they would talk before the games or there was another clip right after that where Wally was talking to another umpire before games. So, you know, there's definitely respect there. And, and, you know, those parts don't get shown though. It seems like I'm, I'm not talking about on the documentary, but just outside of what, you know, what people might perceive and see those parts don't get shown, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And, and George was a great guy. I remember him because every, uh, every team kind of had their own crew. So, you know, there were, there were guys that came and went, but for the most part, if you went to, um, you know, if you went to Macon or Anderson, you were probably going to see some of the same umpires and George was at almost every peanuts home game. Um, so, so Wally and him developed a rapport. So Wally understood that the game was too fast for George. I think George understood it too. And George was a, hell of a nice guy um and and uh you know when something didn't go wally's way or didn't think it was a good call he would go out and he would argue but it would be tempered he he wasn't you know he wasn't going to get thrown out at a home game by the the guy that he was working with every day like you know but when we went to another city uh to cover to cover the peanuts these were guys that didn't you know um didn't have any rapport with Wally they didn't know Wally at all and, and Wally didn't know them and and uh so Wally you know being there for three days and out if he felt felt his team wasn't being treated fairly uh he was going to go out and say something and and um and make a statement now the, the one thing about um there was an ejection in Macon and um was that the right was field a, one the yes, one where yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so what happened there was um I was sitting behind home plate with Bill Winters, who uh, was the cinematographer on the on um, the Irish documentary that I mentioned earlier, and and he <laughs> he did most of the camera work on uh, on Peanuts, and we we're sitting behind home plate. He Bill had a camera filming uh, the, the pitcher and the batter. Uh, the batter hit this monster shot down the line, and it was like 30 feet foul. It was so far foul that once once Bill started to pan the camera, he realized it was foul. So he wanted to get the um, the, the umpire signaling foul ball. Uh, the umpire signaled home run, and uh, so we we actually didn't get the ball going, you know, over the fence in foul territory. Um, which to this day, it just you know, it, it, <laughs> I, I I'm so frustrated by that because it was so obvious. I mean, and that's why we didn't get it, but. Um, yeah. Uh, th there was there was talk uh, that that umpire had been at an Applebee's or something the night before and it had been overheard saying he was going to throw Wally Backman out of a game. And mm -hmm. that that was the type of stuff where, you know, I, I heard that from several sources. It was it was a good they were good enough sources where if if, if the umpire would have agreed to do an interview, we were going to ask him, but he wouldn't. Um, but, uh, you know the the call itself was so awful that i can't i i can't believe anything other than they the the guy wanted to toss wally from a game and he, he got what he wanted and, and the fans got what they wanted too because you know that's that's what a lot of the the fans of making at that point were coming out to see um but um 
you know, all, everything was there for, for a great league. And, and, you know, the umpiring part was, uh, you know, one of the first things that, that became obvious that, that the league hadn't prepared for. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we're, we're watching this kind of play out, you know, that was one of the concerns. And then there was, you know, uh, the documentary had mentioned maybe some budget concerns. Um, I think they had to cancel the all-star game uh, to save, you know, to save money. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, the lights going out in the middle of the game and, and things like that, the facilities not being subpar. So um, kind of wrapping everything up here, what uh, after all these experiences, now you go into the championship series. So kind of talk about, you know, did all that adversity, you know, negatively or positively affect the team? And then uh, just kind of talk about that championship series a little bit. You know, I, I never felt that the the adversity affected the team at all. Um, you know, I think part of that was due to, to the coaching staff. Um, but I, I think the team just really kind of created like this, this cocoon type of atmosphere. They didn't care. You know, it, it was, um, they were there. They wanted to win a championship at that point. You know, at that point, the guys who, who had gotten called uh, into pro ball were gone. And uh, the guys that were left knew that, you know, this was the last thing to play for. You know, they hadn't been picked up but they could, they could make a statement by winning a championship. Um, and, um, you know, as the, as the championship series got started, you know, I felt that um, after Wally uh, chewed the team out right before the end of the season, I, I felt like, you know, from our perspective and the camera crew and, and the film crew, it was just, that was it. They were going to win. Um, and it was, you know, they were totally relaxed about it. They, they felt they were going to win and, uh, there was never any doubt in, in my mind. And I'm sure, I'm sure that the team felt the same way um, because, you know, they, they had, they had beaten, you know, Macon during the season. Uh, Macon was a good team. Um, but, you know, when push came to shove, I mean, the, the peanuts had guys like Curtis Goodwin, Mike Crusoe, Doc Brooks, Joe Hooft. Um, these were guys that had been, you know, kind of tearing through the league all season. And, um, and then the supporting cast, uh, you know, guys, um, guys like Steve Butler. I mean, like these guys were, you know, pitching staff. Drew Chatron was, was, you know, lights out closer. They had all the pieces um, and, and they were just so confident that uh, I could, it would have taken, you know, some, some really crazy, you know, circumstance to, uh, to have them lose at that point. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they, they pulled through, um, but, but it wasn't as if they, they felt like, you know, they had it in hand. They, they worked hard. I mean, they, they, they showed up and they played hard and, and Macon was, like I said, it was a good team. They could have probably beaten them, um, had things gone, you know, certain way, but, um, yeah, I just felt like it all started with the coaching staff. Absolutely. And in the series, so they played a best two out of three, um, the peanuts, I believe ended up winning the first game and then Macon won the second game and then some more adversity here. Um, you know, the weather, the weather that weekend had, uh, had not really cooperated. And then, you know, players had flights scheduled out. I remember one part, I believe, uh, I think it was Wally talking about, you know, if this game gets rained out or, or the last two games get rained out, who's going to pay to change the flights. So there was, you know, there was the, those concerns. Um, so going into that last game, the series tied one-to-one, uh, did you get to see firsthand like the feeling of the group? Was there any concern? Was was there nervousness? Kind of talk to me about that last game, and then on top of that, the weather uh, that was expected. I honestly, you know, it's been it's been a while, so I may be remembering this wrong, but my 
recollection was that the players were more nervous about how they were going to get home because mm-hmm. the writing was on the wall as far as the league not paying bills and, and things like that. Um, as far as winning the game, I mean, they were home. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think they felt that um, they were going to win, you know, because, you know, they, they were very comfortable at home. Macon was a tough place to play. It was, Luther Williams Field was a beautiful ballpark. Um, the crowd, the, you know, the Macon crowd was, a, was a, a good crowd. They were tough, you know, like they, they had followed the season. Like they, they knew the players and they were good fans and they, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was a little tough to play in front of them. And, and uh, there had been some adversity in Macon. So I, I felt like, you know, going in, if Macon was going to win one, it was going to be the one uh, at Macon. But um, when it came back to, to, uh, to Albany, you know, it, it just, it felt like the, that, that the big concern was, wow, if this game doesn't get in and the rain comes in tomorrow, like we all might be stuck, you know, trying to figure out how we're all getting home. And there were guys that had to go back to Minnesota. I mean, like that was the big concern. Johnny Washington had to get back to California. Um, but if I remember correctly, his dad was there, so they were going to drive. But uh, it was that was a much bigger concern. I mean, at, at that point, we had all been through so much, and we'd seen them, this team go through so much. I think the the last game was almost anticlimactic uh, to me because I, I just I would have been shocked had they lost. And um, it was a good game. I mean, it wasn't like they they blew through making that game, but it um, you know it, it just never felt like uh, like they were going to lose. It was almost like you know something that that was uh going to happen and it was just kind of like interesting to see you know like baseball always is it's it's even if you think you know you never know but um but when it turns out the way you thought it was going to happen it's still really fun to see how it all goes down do you still keep in touch with any of the guys from that team or any of the coaches uh yeah yeah a few um you know i i uh i had been in touch with wally for a while um you know and uh Tug Gillingham, you know, I, I, I will say a lot of these guys have gone on to coach and, um, and that's, uh, I think one of the, one of the most powerful statements about who they were as ball players and, and how good their coaching was. I mean, I don't think a guy like Tug Gillingham became a coach because of Wally, but I think, um, you know, being around that coaching staff, being around the atmosphere that all of the coaches created, I think, um, probably helped. Um, but, but I also think that Wally, um, and, and the other coaches that brought in players, they brought in guys that had really high baseball IQs. Um, and, and I mean that, you know, sincerely, like a guy like, uh, Steve Butler has coached now. Um, I, I don't know what his, what his, uh, coaching job is at home in Minnesota, but he's coached team USA. I believe mm-hmm. they're 14 U or they're 15 U. Um, so he, he's a, he's a coach of, you know, fairly, uh, high national prominence at this point. Tug Gillingham runs a fantastic program out in Chicago, a uh, travel program. Um, you know, I know, you know, other guys that, uh, you know, you see on, on Facebook or, you know, social media or whatever that, uh, you know, they've got kids and, and they're coaching and stuff like that. And I'm sure they're great coaches because, you know, they, they were all very good uh, baseball uh, people that, you know, they, they were, they were, they were, you know, they were good guys, but, but they were also, they were just a very smart team. And, and it's something that I remember growing up seeing, you know, the 86 Mets, it was the same way. A lot of those guys went into coaching. The ones that didn't, um, like Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, they're very uh, well-respected broadcasters because they're able to bring that uh, element of, of, you know, explaining the game and understanding the game 
to viewers. And I just felt like, you know, that was when we put a mic on Joey Hoof, it was like, you know, you're, you're going to school now. Now you're, you're learning, you know, what is Joey Hoof doing in between pitches? Like, how is he preparing himself before he gets up to bat? Who is he talking to about their last at bat to find out, you know, what's, you know, what to look for with the pitchers? Um, you know, uh, even a guy like Chris Webb, you know, uh, who, um, I don't think I've been in touch with for a while, but he, he was, uh, you know, he was a knuckleballer. I think he had been an outfielder and he had to teach himself how to, how to throw the knuckleball. And he had just kind of learned it. And this was his first time in pro ball. And like listening to this guy talk about the knuckleball, you were like, wow, like I didn't know that, that that's really interesting. And, and it's, you know, so, you know, I keep in touch with these guys or I see what they're doing. And it's like, you know, you see like uh, Doc Brooks has coached. Uh, I know he's coached his son. I think he, he might be a football coach or, or a baseball coach at this point. Um, Johnny Washington is a, is a coach, I believe, for the Padres now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the, these guys have stayed in the game or around the game, even if, you know, they're back home. And, and uh, you know, it's um, to me, that's one of the, like the really cool things about the documentary is to see how these guys stayed in the game. You know, they, they all found a niche or, or, you know, whatever, or maybe they, they drifted away from the game and came back when they had kids or, or, or whatnot. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's uh, it was it was something that was apparent to everyone back then that like this this team had a really high baseball IQ. This team wanted to be there and they really loved the game. And I think it came across in the way they played. And uh, and ultimately, it probably had a lot to do with with why they won. I mean, they were very talented, but they were also, you know, very committed to. Um, you know, going out there and, and, you know, not disappointing themselves and their teammates and, and their coaching staff. They wanted to win for the right reasons. Absolutely. And uh, last question here before we get into Tyler's five. Uh, I'm curious if there was one or two things about the team or experience or something that you would want people to know that they would that would surprise them or they would maybe find interesting uh, that was not in the documentary or any of the clips. What would that be? Wow. That's an interesting question. Um, Not in the documentary or any of the clips. Or is there anything uh, that stands out that, you know, uh, any memory or something that maybe wasn't captured, but that will just always kind of stay with you? Um, You know, probably... Probably that home run in Macon, just because it was like... The whole premise of the next like four episodes was kind of based on what happened after that home run. And it was just like it was so obvious that it was a foul ball that we didn't get it on camera. And had we got it on camera, I think it would, uh, you know, I don't think it would have changed anything. But, it, oh, you know what? No, let me let me take that back. The the thing that um, isn't in the documentary that people would uh, be interested to know, I get I hope um, would be that. Um, after the ejection, after Wally's ejection in Anderson, South Carolina, um, I, I think there's there's a perception that um, that that clip was immediately put on YouTube and and became uh, you know what it is today, um, you know the the defining moment of the South Coast League and Wally Backman. Um, actually, what what happened was the league. Uh, pressured me to to put that uh, clip out on uh, or to send that clip to ESPN. And um, at the time, we were hoping that the league would have a second season and that we would be able to uh, to have ESPN or Fox Sports 
or somebody come in and, and help us produce, you know, help fund the second season mm -hmm. because I was putting this, uh, most of it was on credit cards. We had some investors that helped get us over the finish line, but we were in talks with ESPN and they, the league wanted me to send this clip overnight to ESPN so they could run it on sports center. And I just, I took a step back and I said, guys, if we do that, we're giving away the most interesting thing that's happened this season for free just so you can get some notoriety for 48 hours. Um, ESPN's never going to want to take this show. And then next season, you're not going to, you know, I'm not coming back next year. I'm not going to be able to afford that. Uh, but if ESPN thinks this is so interesting, we need to get them to, you know, to, to take this show and, and make this into a series. And, uh, and I said, and besides that, like, you know, I've been, I've been dealing with ESPN and, and all these other places. And, uh, if they suddenly think this story is so interesting, they need to get down here and help us out because, you know, I've been trying to pitch this show. Um, I also thought that it was just ridiculous to just send this, this clip out of context to ESPN. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened was I ended up putting it on YouTube in, uh, I think 2010 or 2011. And the hope was that, you know, in context with, I think we have 400 other clips from the show that weren't in the actual episodes. Um, that people would, you know, take the time to watch the ejection and then see the rest of it to understand how Wally Backman used that ejection to manage the team. Uh, unfortunately, I, I feel like that didn't happen for 80 percent of uh, of the country. They they see the clip and that's the that's the thing. Um, but I will say that that you know that that other 20 percent that took the time, guys like you, you know, like that that understand that you know there's got to be more to this story and then you know discover you know like there's a lot more to how Wally managed and, and there was way more to this league than just this one 10 second clip. And there were, you know, fans in all these cities that, that really got screwed out of, you know, the opportunity to see bro, pro baseball because of the way things were run. Um, you know, that was the hope is that, that, that would uh, ultimately kind of help things and, and, uh, and, and show how, how, you know, things really were. Um, but, but yeah, that initial reaction was, yeah, you, you got to send that, that up to Bristol and, and get that on ESPN. And, uh, you know, I, I resisted that immediately. And, uh, when Wally was, um, fired by the league, uh, I, I did ask that, um, you know, we'd be able to come back and, and film Wally packing up his stuff and, and maybe he could say a few words to the crowd before he headed home. And, uh, and I think as a bit of retribution for my unwillingness to, send the clip to ESPN. This was two weeks later. Um, they denied my request and uh, they, they didn't want Wally speaking to the fans. They wanted him out before our cameras got there. And, uh, and uh, well, that didn't really work out too well for them though. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, and, and uh, as a fan of the show and everything, I just want to say thank you for all the time and work that went into, you know, it definitely, uh, um, kind of was inspiring toward not kind of it, it helped me during my coaching career and and uh, you know when you watch it from a baseball coaching perspective like I do it may, really makes you appreciate you know guys like Wally Larry you know Bubba Buddy all those guys and the players too and and you know what it takes to win and have fun when, with winning and how to deal with adversity so uh, kudos to you and the crew and, and just everybody who, who uh, had a hand in that. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate that. And, and really, you know, at this point, I feel like, you know, if, if we can, uh, if this film can help, you know, people understand, you know, what goes on, what pro ball players have to go through, you know, to get to that multi-million dollar contract and how many of them don't get there um, and what the coaches go through and, and what the staff, you know, 
going out there and, and doing what they do every day to, to make sure that there's baseball for people to see. Um, you know, that's, that's what I hope, you know, the, the, uh, the legacy of, uh, of the project is because, um, certainly didn't make me any money. And, uh, and that's cool because, you know, it's okay because, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the project lives on and, and it's, um, it's got a great audience and, you know, I wouldn't trade that for, for anything at this point. Absolutely. And real quick, um, is there a way for people listening to be able to watch uh, watch these? Is it on YouTube? Can they buy it on on Amazon? Or uh, is there a website you have where they can go to? Um, I don't have a website anymore, but it, the DVD is on Amazon. There's a uh, there's an uncensored version and a censored version. Um, I felt pretty strongly about that because I want you know <laughs> I want kids to see this, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. because it, there's a lot for them to learn, and so there is a censored version as well. Um, Actually, it's, it's just the regular version. So just buy the one that's regular and your kids can watch it. It's got bleeps and everything. Um, and then there's the uncensored version. Um, and uh, there are clips. Uh, there are episodes on YouTube. I don't think all of them are on there, um, but I can't remember which ones aren't. Absolutely. Yeah. And for our listeners, uh, definitely uh, check this out if you uh, if you get a chance. It's definitely, especially if you're a baseball fan, it's a great documentary. John and his crew uh, did a great job on it. And uh a team was definitely uh, definitely one to be recognized for sure. Uh, Johnny, ready for Tyler's five? It's just uh, as a reminder to our listeners, it's just five random questions that have nothing to do with anything. And it's more of a kind of a fun get to know you. Sure. Awesome. All right. First question, ZZ Top or NSYNC? ZZ Top. That's a question, really? Yep. <laughs> yep. Top. Okay. Thank you. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> they are... Uh, they are my uh, my favorite band, so I was hoping I would not get the I don't like either of those two bands. So, uh, no, 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 no. is your uh, your pick uh, favorite state to visit? Florida. Oh, awesome! I will be uh, moving there in in three weeks, so I'm definitely uh, excited about that. Nice. So uh, glad to hear. Uh, yeah, so I uh, move into Clearwater, so a great a uh, great baseball area for sure. Yep. So. Um, favorite place to go. Now you said you're from Long Island or you're from Westchester, somewhere up there in New York. So favorite place to go in NYC. Mm, that's a good question. Um, I, I'd have to say, uh, Foley's, but, uh, they just shut down. So, um, Yankee stadium, Yankee stadium. Absolutely. Now what was Foley's? Is that a restaurant or? Yeah, it was a, yeah. Uh, it was an Irish bar. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, just shut down uh, during the pandemic. Got it. Okay. Uh, fourth one, Wendy's or McDonald's? I have to say McDonald's because it's just, you know, there's more of them around when you, when you <laughs> gotta go fast food, you gotta go where you can find it. Absolutely. It, 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 Wendy's are- pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and there are plenty of them in uh, New York City for sure. It seems like there's a McDonald's on every corner. So, yeah. Uh, last subject. Uh, what was your favorite subject growing up in school? History. History. Awesome. Yep. Glad to hear it. Mine too. So, uh, John, really appreciate your time with this, and again, a uh, uh, great, great job with it. And uh, hopefully, our listeners are, are inspired, and and will want to. Uh, watch the documentary if they haven't seen it already. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it. Awesome. John Fitzgerald.